Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Uh, Welcome to this week's On the Record. We are out in California and our first guest on our trip is Michael Amini. Michael, thank you for such a, a hospitable day. We really appreciate your time and uh, the great tour that you gave us. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, and I'm glad that you made the time to come by and uh, see what we're doing. 32 years now you're in it the business? It is. Tell, tell us, how did you get started in the furniture business? What, what made you pick the furniture business? Was it something you always wanted? Did you? I had no other choice. <laughs> I was in different kind of businesses. I was in fashion business for a short time. Then I went to shoe business, car business. And I used to bring gray market cars from Europe and uh, sell them here. And that sort of uh, got shut down overnight uh, by government announcing that no more cars unless you own it for over two years overseas. Well, that would kill the business model. It did. Then I went into dealerships and worked in dealerships, which it wasn't really my thing. So uh, the, a local manufacturer was looking for a salesperson in Los Angeles. And uh, I got a job there as a salesman. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just a salesman. The owner of the factory asked me, what do you know about furniture? I said, nothing. He said, what are you doing here? I said, are you looking for a carpenter or are you looking for a salesman? He said, salesman. I said, I'm a salesman. I can sell anything you, you give me. He said, okay, I'll hire you for three months. If you don't sell, I'm going to fire you. I said, you got it. I worked there for nine months, and I knew I want to have my own business. And I found out about Taiwan Furniture Show, and I wanted to go to Taiwan, and he wouldn't let me go. It was in November. I remember that very well. Um, I went anyway. When I came back, he fired me. And um, that basically persuaded me to go and register ICO. And um, I remember two years after that, we were both showing in San Francisco show. They were right across the hall from me uh, in a 2,000 square foot showroom. And I had a 7,000-square-foot showroom from, from them. Very good business. And he came and told me, the biggest mistake I made in my life was to fire you. And I said, I want to thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's how I started furniture business. I, I Really, I didn't choose furniture business. But I've al- always been fortunate that I have a little taste uh, 
that I, I guess it comes with, with you in birth. And I always could uh, distinguish beautiful stuff from non-beautiful stuff. Well, I remember one time you and I were talking, and, and we talk, you, you're very well known for your fashion sense and for the clothes that you wear and, and your jewelry and accessorizing impeccably. And I remember asking you one time if that was something that you had started as part of building your persona in the industry, and you said no, and you actually showed me a picture of yourself when you were 16 years old. So your, your sense of style is not in any way calculated, it's just intrinsic to who you are. Well, I, I have to tell you, when I was six years old, I was a child fashion model. And uh, I had an auntie that, uh, back home, she was a very high caliber tailor. And, uh, you know, she had a partner that together, they made uh, beautiful dresses for, uh, you know, very um, high level clients. As a matter of fact, uh, the Shah of Iran's uh, crowning, uh, they were involved and they made the, uh, the dress or the gown for Queen of Iran at that time. And I remember I was very small as a child. Uh, you know, I used to hang around my auntie a lot. And I used to sit next to her and uh, every time she needed to put the thread through the needle, she would let me do it because she couldn't see very well. And uh, she would teach me how to sew. So I know how to sew. <laughs> uh, and from that time, uh, it, it was, uh, uh, you know, something woke up. You know, we all have certain talents that we probably don't know. I mean, a lot of people have talents that they don't know they do. And uh, sometimes we are lucky that somebody wakes it up, uh, wake it up, uh, or wake you up, or wakes that talent up. And uh, uh, all of a sudden you come to get to know yourself, that, wow, I, I really can do this. And that's, I think, what happened in terms of fashion and clothing. It became a hobby. Uh, I have a picture here when I'm 16 years old. And I don't look like a 16 years old. Uh, I, I was different than all the kids around. And uh, I was designing my own clothes. I used to go to a tailor and say, this is the style I want. So I used to have all my shirts made, my suits made. And at the age of 17, I, for the first time, I went to Europe uh, just for shopping. And uh, I remember I bought two full suitcase of clothes and came back. Thanks to my dad, he gave me a lot of money to shop. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, that taste level grew in me. And uh, I always wanted to design and to make beautiful stuff. So furniture fell right into that particular territory. And I always looked at furniture as fashion business. And I tried to make it different than anybody else. Frankly, I didn't know anyone in the industry. I didn't know a particular design from the other. 
I didn't even know the names of, you know, different design categories. I just made and designed and manufactured what I thought it would be beautiful. So at that first Taiwan show in those first couple of years, did you start right away bringing in the, the kinds of furniture that people now associate with ICO, or did you start just kind of selecting furniture that was available and then built to the point where you could design your own? I didn't have any money. So I had to survive, number one. So no, I, I basically met a few people, made a few contacts. It took me two years before I can bring my first container. And I started with coffee tables. So uh, I didn't have too much to say because nobody would make a container full of uh, you know, several designs just for you, what you want. Plus I had to learn. I had to learn the industry. I had to learn furniture, how to make it, what's possible, what's not. So it took me a, a couple of years before I can sit down and say, this is what I want to do. And I made a lot of good friends that they helped me along the way. And one of those people is Samuel Coe uh, of Lacquer Craft, mm -hmm. which he's extremely successful. Uh, and we basically uh, started, uh, you know, growing. Uh, he grew a lot more than us. <laughs> <laughs> How did you meet Samuel? That first Taiwan trip, uh, one of the companies I went and talked with and uh, got his card and uh, as a potential customer, uh, that's where I met him. And uh, I wrote to him, he answered, and uh, close to a two years later, he shipped my first container. I was so excited. Uh, when, when the truck pulled in, I was out there, uh, you know, trying to uh, watch and see how they parked this uh, trailer. Uh, that's where I started. Uh, so one container a month, then it becomes two and three and four. And uh, we grew almost 100, 150% every year uh, since 1988. Hmm. And uh, we've been enjoying uh, that growth, uh, not as much as then. Uh, right not 188 percent still. <laughs> <laughs> I think anybody would take 188 percent growth, but, you know, <coughs> percentage growth on small volume, right? Yes. From yes. one container to two, there's 100 percent. That's correct. Yes, of course. Um, as as you scaled the business. It's always a challenge, right? You, when, you, when you start, it was just you. Maybe you had one employee, two employees. Today, you walked us around. There's over 100 employees in this building. I think close to 200 is what we said. Yes. Um, how did you, as you start to scale, because I think that's always a challenge for entrepreneurial people, is to scale a business and to start to trust others to enact your vision. So as you started to scale the business, how did you communicate to people so that there was a consistent vision, so that your vision continued to be the one that drove the company, even as you could not touch every single employee or talk to every single employee? I think the most important thing is the culture in the company. Um, 
And every single person that uh, comes in, first of all, needs to accept and believe in that culture. Once they believe in the culture of the company and they know why this culture is in place, they become a believer. That's the hardest job, to make believer other people that you hire. You treat them with integrity, with respect, and you tell them why. I have been truly fortunate to have so many employees here that they are all believers, they're all hardworking. I don't need to tell them to work hard. Sometimes I have to tell them to get out of here at seven o'clock because they don't want to leave. I feel guilty to leave when other people are working. Um, if they know you care, if they know you love them, if they know that you care about them just as much as you care about yourself and your family, then everything is resolved, everything is great. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how much money you have, how big of a company you have. If you do not have believers in your company, you will not succeed. Uh, and you can't grow a company by yourself, no matter who you are. You need people, and you need good people. Uh, I think I've been fortunate to have so many good people. Uh, I think earlier I told you over 50% of our employees have been here 10 years or longer. Uh, 10, 15, 17, 18, 22, up till 25 years. Uh, we just celebrated our second employee's 25th year anniversary. To me, that's a pride that I will not forget. Uh, that means that we're doing something right here. Uh, now I uh, travel tremendously. Eight months in a year, probably, I'm gone. I entrust the whole company on all the people that I have. And they're doing such a fantastic job. I don't have to worry about it. Sometimes when we talk about <clears throat> how well we treat people and people, I, I think it creates a sense, and I think it's particularly true in young companies today, right? When you talk about Google, it's, you almost get the sense that it's a play culture and everybody just kind of hangs out in, in pods. And yet, there, there's always an element of having to have standards, accountability, a commitment to excellence. One of the things that we talked about in our walkthrough um, that people can actually see when we run the video, we, we talked about um, the environment that you've created here. Every office is beautifully appointed. Um, there's paintings throughout as you walk through the building. Your headquarters mirrors your showroom experience. But we also talked about um, not a casual day, right? People don't come to work in jeans. They dress up, they wear suits, they wear ties. Explain your philosophy about that and why that's important. I think that's a lesson that, that other people could benefit from. I think professionalism uh, is the cornerstone of every company. We talk about everyone to be professional. Um, you know, it's wonderful to have uh, shorts and t-shirts and tennis shoes on a weekend 
you're not working. When you get up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror, and you look at yourself dressed up, and you look groomed, and you look good, you look professional, that affects the way you work as a professional, in my opinion. Um, we don't necessarily require people to wear ties or suit, but look professional. Uh, that's how we expect people because I tell them, dress for success. How would you dress if you're successful? We want you to be successful. If you're not, look at yourself, why? Tell us, what can we do for you? How can we help you to be successful? And we expect you to help us to be successful. It's basically, um, you know, helping each other here. I never tell people are working for me. We're working together. We don't have any titles here in, within the company. If something needs to be done, we all do it. Um, I remember vividly uh, Larry Rinaldi that used to be uh, our ex-president that he, I think five years ago, retired. Uh, I was interviewing him and he said, what do you expect from president of your company? I said, I expect the president to do what I do. He said, well, what do you do? I said, I run the company, I manage the company, and if I need to pick up a rag and clean a table, I do that too. That culture runs in the company. Doesn't matter your president, vice president, director, or just a regular employee. Everybody has title for outside. Here, we all work together. If they're overloaded, overcrowded in our will call area, I go down there. I take my jacket off, my tie off, and I go stand there and I manage or direct traffic. Uh, and people see that, that we don't treat them like a second class employee. Everybody's important. I walk to warehouse, I shake everybody's hands. I joke around with them, we talk, we laugh, we go to picnic together, and we have a picnic day that all the management cook for all the other employees. We serve them, we cut fruits, we do everything. There's nobody above somebody else. Uh, I have a open door policy, anybody can come and see me, or the other management. And uh, I'm truly blessed having such wonderful people around me that they have been with me for years and years and years. Now, your oldest son, Keon, graduated school this year. Yes. And he's starting to become involved in the business. Yes, thank God. <laughs> so let's project forward to whatever indeterminate time it is where it becomes his, his turn to step up. What advice will you offer him? Know what you want, be determined, work hard, 
and you'll succeed. Um, he has what I didn't have. He has me to correct him, to teach him, to direct uh, you know, his decision-making process. Uh, and he has money in his disposal. But he's, uh, both of my boys are such good kids that they never take anything for granted. Uh, he volunteered to go to Vietnam and stay there and work hard and learn it from the bottom up. Uh, I remember he was nine years old and he said, Dad, if I work in your company, I want to start from the warehouse. I still remember that. So I think, I think uh, with the attitude that he has, you know, he can really make it happen. And I'm looking forward for, for his guidance because, you know, younger generation these, these days are, you know, far more sophisticated than when I was his age. So I'm looking forward to hear his point of view and uh, to help him as much as I can. Well, I look forward to watching his progress and yours. Thank you for taking Thank the you. time with us today. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate you and uh, Nick for being here. And uh, we are honored that you took the uh, time and effort to come by and see us. My guest is Michael Lamini. Thank, Thank you. you.